Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, March 30th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back member of the Ben Jarofsky Brain Trust and web editor for In These Times, Miles Complassen. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, so much more information that you want to know. Hey, and if you like Ben Jarofsky, there's a whole bunch of stuff from him there, too. Just head over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling the City Council Revolt Thursday, and here's why. This is Chicago City Council. I had a mini revolt today. I almost slept through it. Oh, my God, how embarrassing. <laughs> All right, let me set the table for you, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm sitting in bed just waking up, man. It was early for me, like 10 in the morning or something like that. I get this text from uh, Patrick J. Whalen, frequent guest in the show. Actually, there is no J in his name. I just love throwing it in there. And he texts me. He goes, uh, where's the text? I don't get this vote today. Does this restructure improve efficiency? Feel likes are sneaking something in. And I'm like, what vote? I didn't know what he was talking about. Turns out there been a, was a raging debate in the Chicago City Council at a meeting that was specially called by Lori Lightfoot to discuss the rearrangement of the Chicago City Council. When I went to bed this morning, ladies and gentlemen, there was no talk, as far as I knew, of a, a city council meeting. I was completely oblivious. Oh, my God, there's a revolution in the Chicago City Council, and I'm sleeping through it. Anyway quickly made up for lost time I obsessively spent the next two hours passionately following this debate showing how weird i am at my age i should be moving on folks to other i don't know interests i should take other hobbies astronomy maybe kite flying something you know like like there's a Pottery studio, not far from where I live. I'm like, gosh, take like pottery courses and not be so obsessive about the Chicago political scene. I can't help myself. I'm like a junkie. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, follow me on this. For years and years and years, the tradition in the Chicago City Council is that the legislative body, the city council, accedes to the executive branch, the mayor, in determining who gets to chair committees, council committees. Why does that matter? Because Council committees means a little patronage. You get to hire a council staff, a little extra budget. You get to throw the money around. You get uh, a little power through the gavel. You get to hold the gavel. But, you know, these aldermen love that gavel. In fact, I, I kind of like a little jealous. I would love to hold a gavel one day. Boom, boom. City council meeting. I call this meeting to order, you know, and they have a meeting and you're the gavel and you recognize speakers. That's power. Why do you think they go into this business? You think what? They do it because they want to improve city services? So it's, there's, there's a lot at stake here in terms of the universe of the Chicago City Council. There's also a lot of stake in just in terms of like the general theme of Chicago government. 
Are we going to continue to be a government dominated by the mayor? Or are we going to have more small D democracy? And we're seeing shifts in this, folks. We've been seeing shifts in this for like the last, I don't know, 10 years. Uh, we're going to have eventually one day an elected school board. Since 1995, the uh, Board of Education has been controlled by the mayor who appoints the superintendent, appoints the board members, and they do pretty much what he or she says. And we're now heading toward a little democracy with the police department. We're going to have police councils. They won't have as much power, obviously, as the Board of Education will have over the Chicago Public Schools, but they will have some advice, uh, advisory powers, and they will have the power of the pulpit. And now in the Chicago City Council, uh, we're moving toward democracy where the council moved to name its own chairs ahead of Tuesday's mayoral election. And I know Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson, the back of their minds are like, mm, particularly Vallis. <laughs> Paul, Vallis. Paul Vallis comes out of the daily administration. And the central tenet of the daily administration as was established Back in 1989, when Daly was first elected mayor of the city of Chicago, my distinguished guest, Miles Conflossen, grew up in this era. So he kind of knows this in the back of his mind. The central tenet of the Daly administration is that all power must rest with the mayor. We cannot trust the people in the city of Chicago to have a small D democracy. Otherwise, they may elect someone like Harold Washington, who, ladies and gentlemen, was as to the left on the political spectrum as Bernie Sanders is. Chicago once had, not in name, but in like worldview, a socialist mayor. He wasn't, he was a Democrat, big D Democrat, but he had socialist, like today, his policies we considered radical left. And the powers that be in the city of Chicago could never, ever, ever, ever let that happen again. All power goes to Mayor Daley. Everybody who has any kind of authority in the city of Chicago, be it the Chamber of Commerce, be it the editorial boards of the mainstream dailies, everything they can do is to support the notion that would be utter chaos if the mayor doesn't have total control. This is the environment from which Paul Vallis emerged. This is the environment from which he emerged as revenue department chair when he created the TIF program with Daly. Have the secret slush fund, which only a mayor controls, raising your taxes without telling you. And this was the agenda he followed when he became CEO, when Daly put him in charge of the Chicago Public Schools and stopped paying pension money and started using that pension money to fortify the budget and do things that we want, like, I don't know, fix schools, add playgrounds, give the city a sense that, wow, we have a mayor in charge, when in fact he was, as they say, kicking the can down the road. As, that's what they say now. So we're paying for it now. Anyway, the city council made its move away from that daily era, and uh, they created a, um, a new structure. Let me see. Pat Whalen was so kind as to send me. And this was really, I mean, the vote was, it was a very heated debate. We'll be talking about a lot about this down the next week with uh, Dave Kloatz, I'm sure. Uh, Nick Spazzato lost his mind at one point, uh, started swearing on the council floor. This is bullshit, is what he said, I believe. But I'm looking at this, uh, this vote. And the way they apportion committee chairs, and it, this is as close as you can come to like a unique coalition, a real diverse coalition. Uh, first thing, Committee on Aging is uh, Alderwoman Samantha Nugent, a Paul Vallis supporter. 
Committee on Aviation, Alderman Matt O'Shea, some of the 19th Ward, a Paul Vallis supporter. Committee on Budget, uh, Pat Dow, third ward, a Brandon Johnson supporter. Committee on Buildings, uh, Deborah Silverstein, uh, a Vallis supporter. You got a Vallis supporter, Harris, Mitchell, Tabaris. And then here's the key, Committee on Education, Alderman Byron Sixo Lopez. They don't get any leftier than Byron Sixo Lopez, my friends. <laughs> they gave him a committee. Lori Lightfoot hated Byron Sixo Lopez. Pretty much everybody outside of the Ben Jarofsky show in the city of Chicago hates Byron Sixo Lopez. He's too left. I love Byron Sixo Lopez. <laughs> but he got a committee. This is uh, who else from the left got a committee? Uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa got a committee. He got the uh, what committee? Housing and real estate. And uh, looking down this list further, Alderman Vasquez got a committee. Uh, he's on the left side. A committee on state and federal legislation, and so forth. And so I'm looking for anybody else. Oh, Matt Martin got a committee, ethics committee. So you know what? I have to. How would I have voted? I would have voted. I don't know. That's a tough question because on one hand, I, I want the city council to be independent. On the other hand, I'm just a contrarian. So if I see everybody lining up going one way, I kind of have this instinct. I just want to go the other way for whatever reason. But that's just weird and irrational. So for the moment, I am like tipping my hat to the Chicago City Council. Little independence. Will it last? I do not know. You know, the new mayor could come in uh, a month from now and command that they change this uh the committee structures and make uh put his allies if more in power and undercut uh his opponents anything's possible in chicago these days so um who knows how long it'll last but for the moment little encouragement there ladies and gentlemen and a very uh entertaining to put it mildly city council uh, debate today and we'll be uh, taking the deep I know deep dive I know with uh, Dave Gloss. Uh I now turn my attention to the guest right in front of me, the great Miles Conflassen, pride and joy of Whitney Young High School, uh, editor writer for In These Times, and big time lefty writer and thinker in the city of Chicago. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here, Ben. Uh, any thoughts before we take the deep dive on all the other issues of the day about what the city council did today? Well, I think your characterization is pretty spot on in terms of uh, this being an effort led by the city council, which has for decades really operated um, under the control of the mayor's office. And, you know, I had questions, I think a lot of us did, when Lori Lightfoot lost in the first round, what was going to happen during this kind of lame duck session, right, where she no longer was, you know, going to continue to control this extremely powerful office she's on her way out and yet still has to oversee the city you know and and host uh, city council meetings and we know you know as soon as she got into office uh mayor lightfoot really made it um, a priority to try to disrupt any decision making independently by the city council she lambasted aldermanic prerogative you know made tons of enemies and uh, and specifically a lot of the people you're talking about that are across the political spectrum. You know, it's, it wasn't, she didn't only alienate uh, progressive members, but members from all kinds of caucuses and backgrounds. And, you know, so this, I think, is the fruits of some of that, uh, 
behavior that was really antagonistic towards the council helped to lead to this point where uh, older people want to retain some power regardless of who's going to sit on the fifth floor the next time around. I also think that uh, this question of how, is the city council a legislative body, you know, is really being reckoned with in a way we haven't seen in recent Chicago history, uh, because usually what the city council does is just votes up or down on whatever the mayor and their office decides to put in front of them. You know, it's there's there's very little new legislation that comes out. It's does you know it's very different from like Congress, for example, where people are sponsoring and coming up with ordinances and. Uh, bills and everything in the city council that has not traditionally been the case. It's starting to, and you're seeing it especially from more, you know, left-leaning members, progressive members, people like Rosana Rodriguez and 33rd Ward, who, um, you know, wrote the treatment, not trauma ordinance that has become, even though it's not even, you know, a bill, it's, there's some pilot programs around it that are being uh, tried out in a number of wards and successfully, I might add, but that's become a flashpoint in the mayor's race because the, you know, it came out of the city council, this idea of investing in mental health supports and alternatives to traditional policing in order to help deal with the fact that, you know, there's plenty of emergency situations police officers are not trained to deal with. Um, people want to talk about that. And Lori Lightfoot didn't, you know, she didn't come out with that plan and try to get, she's tried to claim some credit for some of the more positive elements of it. You'll, you'll see, you know, when, when she ran um, for mayor again, but that's an example, I think, of the type of lawmaking um, and legislative efforts that a lot of the people involved in this process want to see. Um, it also, to, from my understanding, uh, this all has to be relitigated in May, right? Like this is, it's basically symbolic for now in that whoever is the new mayor and the new council, because a number of council members aren't alike, you know, we don't know how a lot of these races are going to wind up. So to my understanding, granted, I'm no expert on this, but I think this all will have to be revoted on. Obviously, it still holds a lot of weight, you know, what the decisions that were made today are, but I don't think it's by any means set in stone. And as we both know, a lot of what actually happens in the council comes down to the rules committee. And that's ultimately where, you know, if people want to defer and publish, people want to block legislation, if the mayor wants to, that is still a very open question to me in terms of how, whether certain bills or, you know, proposals that are more controversial, if they're able to get through, um, it's going to depend a lot on how that is structured, you know, that, um, more of the internal rulemaking processes within the council. So I think a lot is still left to be determined, but you're right that I think this was an effort to try to grab onto some more small D democracy within the council. And specifically, it's a response to how Lori Lightfoot led, you know, her administration and the, the acrimony that she had with the current members and their you know, refusal to get into a situation like that again. And I'll tell you, a lot of the people that were voicing the most, you're right that a number of Vallis people, um, backers are involved in some of this, you know, we're getting committee assignments, but some of the most vocal people against it were the outspoken Vallis supporters and even newer ones, people like Sophia King. And I think that speaks to what you said as well, is that a Vallis administration would most likely try to mimic uh, Rahm Emanuel or a uh, 
Richard Daly administration and really try to rule with an iron fist and have as much control as possible mm. over the happenings in city council. And this kind of flies in the face of that more, you know, um, centralized power approach to to governance. Absolutely. I, uh, I, if, my guess is, is that uh, if Alice is victorious, uh, he will try to do another council reorganization uh, in May. I will point out, <clears throat> so you're right, uh, this is maybe just like an opening round. Uh, I will point out, it's interesting, you, you mentioned lame duck, uh, and I had a smile. I thought about the last lame duck session. So uh, when Ron was walking out of office, uh, he used his that 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 last city council meeting uh, to push through Lincoln Yards one point three billion dollar uh, TIF deal uh, to uh, gentrify an already gentrifying a, a neighborhood, and it sort of symbolizes the inequity and fairness uh, in the city of Chicago how money is distributed in the city, uh, and uh, so that was his last act. Uh, <laughs> this last act is I think is a vast improvement over that last act. Now, will it last? I do not know. I believe, I totally believe that if um, Paul Vallis uh, is victorious, he will continue the uh, the economic development policies of Rom and uh, Daly, in which you uh, spend as much money as you can on uh, gentrifying areas to continue the gentrification, uh, to continue like prosperity and uh, and spread that prosperity like rings and circles around the loop. Uh, eventually moving poor people out of Chicago. That's been the planning policy of the city uh, since uh, you were in grammar school, uh, Miles. So I do believe he will continue that policy. I have n I'm not quite sure where Brandon Johnson will go with this. Uh, there'll be a lot of resistance uh, if he were to like, impede that general policy. Like right now, there's a, a measure before the city council to spend $168 million in TIF dollars uh, converting buildings on LaSalle Street downtown from a, a business to residential. So like, what would Brandon Johnson do with that proposal? I do not know the answer to that. Um, and uh, so, yes, I, and it is an encouraging sign, in my humble opinion, when you put it that way. But when you just mentioned lame duck, I go, oh, my goodness, what a difference. It's just between this lame duck and that last lame duck. Um, so anyway, all right, let's move on from this city council uh, revolt. You're right. They're probably discussing this in May when they have a counter revolt. Uh, and let's talk about uh, Bernie Sanders coming uh, to Chicago tonight. Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders coming to Chicago rally for Brandon Johnson. Uh, and, you know, I, I you really want to put this in my head, uh, Miles, and I've been thinking about this. Uh, Chicago as a political symbol to the rest of the country, on the left and the right. And it has symbolic value. And as a, a person who's just embedded in the political culture of this city, just obsessively follows the details of how politicians behave and how rhetoric is used in the city. I always smile when I see how Chicago is presented by folks on the left and the right. Uh, the people on the right tend to use Chicago, like turn it into like this hellhole. Uh, and which is a, supposed to sing, be symbolic of what happens when you put lefties in charge, which is such a joke. No lefty has been anywhere near in charge of the city of Chicago since Harold Washington. Okay, so it's a joke. Uh, but lefties do their own. They, they get a little gooey-eyed, in my humble opinion, about um, 
the movement in Chicago and, you know, they like they have fan favorites that they promote as great leftists to people who are outside of Chicago who don't understand the bizarre dynamics uh, of Chicago. Uh, so in many cases, I think both sides are uh, inaccurate in how they present Chicago. What's your thoughts about this? In general, I think there's vast disparity in terms of how Chicago is perceived by national figures, national media, national you know observers, just people from out of, out of town that aren't here versus you know what's happening on the ground. And you definitely saw that over the course of the coverage of the mayoral election. Um, and we're, we're continuing to see it. You know, I think that you've talked a lot about Brett Stevens and, um, you know, New York Times columnists deciding to opine on the, the happenings within our fair city. Um, and it's just, it speaks to the fact that there's very little engagement with what's actually happening, which into politics are frequently much more complicated than uh, how they're portrayed as either, like you said, I've talked to national reporters that have reached out that are under the were under the impression that you know Lori Lightfoot was like a progressive darling even right before this recent election, you know, and that people were trying to stop her from you know taking on all these you know progressive agenda items. And I had to say, you know, that's not really exactly what's going on here, and it's kind of understandable because the people that are in positions of power want certain. Uh, storylines to break through. And they're the ones that have comms shops that are able to, you know, interact with media figures and outlets and editors and define different, you know, storylines and what have you. But it's not representative, you know, and, and that is, I think, long been an issue. It'll continue to be an issue. There's very few, you know, bureaus that are based here. And so you just have that disconnect. Um, I will say when, when I think about how Chicago is viewed nationally, there's it, it's understandable that people think of it as a progressive city because it generally votes progressive. You know, people want progressive policies. The problem with it is that there's also tons of uh, outside money that floods in. You know, you could call it inside money when it's, you know, rich people that live here, but frequently it's people that are not, you know, based in Chicago that are investing to have their type of politics um, lifted up. And you can see that in things like what what even happened over the, the fair tax, um, which was, uh, you know, Chicago overwhelmingly voted for progressive income tax. But you and I remember the, uh, you know, bl uh, plastering of TV ads saying that we we're going to raise our taxes. And who was funding that it was all, you know, corporate right wing groups that wanted to stop Chicago from doing this. Chicago voters still, meanwhile, did vote progressive. But when it comes to candidates, it's much easier to scare people. You know, you could say that Brandon Johnson's going to, you know, defund the police and enact, you know, socialism that'll you know, take away your home and your savings and tax you out of existence or something like that and make up these scare tactic things that are completely divorced from reality um, because that's, you know, the political goal is to stop people from being able to support uh, the progressive values that they actually believe in by just making things up. And I think that that has an impact in terms of how, you know, both people in Chicago vote and then how those issues are viewed 
nationally because, you know, I've seen so many reports that just call, you know, Brandon Johnson a defund the police or just immediately <laughs> take that as the, you know, like that's a, a, a truth or, or something when there's no backing up of that other than like that's just what's been established as the narrative. And I'll say, I mean, on that kind of thing, it's like, well, you know, they said that about Joe Biden, too. They'll say that about anybody, you know, when you talk about you know, how certain people with progressive values or even just Democrats are are painted. The other way that Chicago, though, is viewed, I think, is the city that kicked out Trump. You know, Trump tried to come and hold a rally here um, at the same place, also at UIC, I will say, you know, where Bernie is holding this rally uh, tonight. And Bernie's not going to get kicked out, I'll tell you that much. You know, people were out on the streets and said, no, we don't want Trump here because Trump was one of the key people who helped to spread this perception of Chicago was a hellhole and a, you know, murder capital and the place that, you know, you'd never want to um, go out on the streets because it's so dangerous or disgusting, crime-ridden, things like that. And people here said, no, you know, we don't want somebody who's going to spew that kind of vile rhetoric about our city, let alone the type of uh, policies that he promoted, which were completely xenophobic and jingoistic and anti-working class. So um, I think both of those things are part of how, you know, people here have a particular, uh, you know, bone to pick with when we get misrepresented in um, national press and by national political figures. And the fact that Bernie Sanders, you know, performed so well, especially in 2016, but even in 2020, even after the Illinois primary, it was pretty clear by that point, Joe Biden was going to win the nomination. Um, Bernie wasn't even really campaigning. You know, that was the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, we all remember. And I think Bernie still almost matched Joe Biden's total in the primary, even though he had like essentially, I don't think he had officially suspended his campaign yet, but he basically was out of the running at that point in 2016, I think he won. So, and he definitely won a number of the uh, the wards across the the city. So, Bernie Sanders is very popular in Chicago. And while I've seen some people, you know, criticize Brandon Johnson's campaign for having, you know, embracing a lot of these national figures and endorsements, I do think the Bernie endorsement particularly is really savvy and something to build on, especially when it comes to attracting the youth vote. Because while Bernie didn't activate as many new voters as he certainly would have wanted to in his uh, primary runs, he did activate a lot of new voters and a lot of them were young people. And I think that those are the people, when you look at it, it was like, what, like 3% of voters between 18 and 24 voted uh, in the first round election in February. That's dismal, you know, 3%. So if, you know, a Bernie Sanders coming and performing and having, you know, Vic Mensa and Tasha perform, you know, artists that are younger and connect with young people, if that can boost those numbers a little bit, that's a smart move, I think, for the Johnson campaign um, to capitalize on. And Bernie has, you know, roots here, obviously. He went to University of Chicago. He was an activist in Chicago. He says that, you know, Chicago really informed a lot of his politics. Um, and the fact that, you know, Martin Luther uh, uh, King Jr.'s son is going to actually be there as part of the rally, I think, speaks to the through lines of um, the fights for racial justice and civil rights with more of the focus on uh, labor rights that um, you know, Bernie has, has held up lately, especially in Congress. So I think that is a, a smart move. And I think it's probably going to lead to a little bit more engagement, especially from some of those younger voters.
Well, uh, since you mentioned it, I am um, taking a look. Uh, now you got me curious. Uh, so now I'll go back to, to this is the geek in me. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so um, Bernie Sanders, hold on. I want to take a look at, you're absolutely correct when you point out that uh, Bernie Sanders had pretty much um, given up his campaign by the time he got uh, to Chicago. And so it was a more of a symbolic vote. I remember so many votes like this. I was just thinking about 20, 2000 when Bill Bradley, I wanted to vote for Bill Bradley against Al Gore. And he had the campaign was by the time it rolled around in Illinois. It was pretty much over, uh, but I still voted for him. All right, here we go. So Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, let me see if you how. All right. Here you go. Bernie Sanders, Sanders trivia. Uh, what? Percentage, what, how many votes do you think Bernie got in 2016 and what percentage? 2016. I can't tell you, I can't tell you the hard number, but I would guess in the Democratic primary, it, who, because it was Hillary, who else was running at that point? Was it still like Chafee, I think, was still in the race? Maybe. All right. uh, no, uh, it, the other candidate, oh my God, we're on a tangent here, but you'll love this. Uh, Martin O'Malley from, uh, I think, okay. the former governor of Maryland. Larry Cohen, I don't, who uh, not quite sure who Larry Cohen is. If it's the same Larry Cohen, I think it is. Uh, but I'm not sure. There's, and then uh, Willie Wilson was also a candidate in that race. Willie Wilson runs for was uh, briefly a mayor, uh, a presidential candidate. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I'll just tell you, got three hundred and twenty thousand votes, forty five percent of the total. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, won. She did particularly well. Um, I'm going to take a look before I say this. You'll you'll remember that was the I remember I remember pretty clearly they they shipped in uh, old Bill a Bubba came through. They had Bill Clinton on voting day yeah. uh, in Illinois for the primary in Chicago, trying to rile up um, get Clinton voters activated. So clearly they were trying to you know pull out yeah. all the stops at that point. So yeah, but but Bernie, considering he was you know obviously. Uh, at that point in the race, also Illinois comes later in the calendar, was already, you know, pretty far behind in terms of the delegate count. I think the fact that in 2016, he still even got 45 percent of the vote here is pretty instructive to his his general oh, yeah. popularity. No, I'm not, uh, yeah, he's and and Bernie voters are hardcore voters. Uh, so he got 45 percent. And then in, in 2020, uh, the numbers went down. Uh, the fewer people voted, which uh, was kind of alarming, but he, he got uh, roughly 42 percent of the vote and his campaign was over by the time uh, Illinois rolled around. So, um, all right. I I laugh whenever uh, the val I get a lot of vowels. People trash talk me, uh, as you might imagine. So whenever there's an endorsement for Brandon Johnson, they minimize it. Uh <laughs> And then when they get when they get an endorsement, it's like, did you see this? They maximize it. Uh, so I just kind of smile. And um, so what, in your humble opinion, uh, will be the impact, if any, of uh, Bernie Sanders rally tonight and Bernie Sanders uh, strongly endorsing Brandon Johnson? Well, as I said, I think that that really it's it's all about votes at this point. You know, I think that most of the money has been raised. And at this point, it's not about commercials. It's about getting out the vote, you know, and really bringing people to the polls, getting those numbers up, running up, you know, margins where you are popular among your demographics, among your base. And 
I think there's no doubt that young people would prefer, do prefer the type of politics that Brandon Johnson and Bernie Sanders represent than Paul Vallis. There's no doubt about that. It's just a question of voter engagement. And I think that the hope of what the, the rally can accomplish is getting people um, energized and hopefully signed up if they're not already to uh, to vote, to go vote early while they still can and to, uh, to turn out on April 4th and to hopefully, you know, do volunteer shifts. I think that's really what the campaign is uh, the Johnson campaign is relying on. I think that's what helped them make the runoff. There's no way that Johnson would be in the runoff if it wasn't for the army of volunteers and groups like United Working Families that did all the um, election day and lead up to election day, get out the vote efforts. So I think that's the what what they're hoping to get out of it. I think they'll definitely get good sound bites and you know headlines. There's going to be tons of national media there, so there will be media. Um, exposure that will be um, really positive for the race. And there's a number of Congress people, including, you know, Delia Ramirez, who obviously is a big champion of um, Latino community in Chicago, who is a newly elected representative who's going to be speaking there and supporting Brandon and has been an ally of, um, of Bernie Sanders as well. In the primary, I mean, Brandon Johnson endorsed Elizabeth Warren. You remember that. You were, you know, I think you hosted a debate about that, uh, in fact. So it's not like Brandon has always been a diehard Bernie person, but I think it speaks to the fact that politics are more important than personality. And Bernie Sanders sees in Brandon Johnson a reflection of the type of politics that he has advocated for throughout his career, especially because you know, Brandon Johnson is somebody who comes out of working class communities and has gone into politics to represent social movements, not to, you know, benefit or part of like an established family name. I think some of that is definitely a way in which the two politicians are connected. Um, But also, I think that it speaks to the fact there's a through line of what type of, you know, worker forward politics that Bernie Sanders has espoused throughout his career and the way that specifically Brandon Johnson has uh, run as a candidate in this race, which is a strong advocate of labor rights um, and, you know, and economic justice, the type of policies that are, have, have traditionally been marginal within the Democratic Party because they are considered to be, you know, too far out of the mainstream. They're coming into the mainstream and Bernie helped to bring them there. And I think Brandon is continuing with that torch. All right. Uh, so we've seen some uh, mainstream Democratic uh, politicians endorsing Paul Vallis, which caught me. I shouldn't say caught me off guard. I probably I expected it, but I am having said that a little disappointed in them to put it mildly uh and made me think about larger issues and really crystallized by a story i read uh, in today's new york times uh, about a gentleman named uh richard collenberg who has become an advocate against uh, affirmative action in um, college admissions so this is a different issue which i don't want to go into that complete deep dive into that it's a subject for another time uh, but it's very interesting how they, this man's position and why he, uh, what led him, he says, to take a stance against affirmative action 
uh, in uh, uh, college admissions. And it talks about a sign. I'm just going to read this to you. A sign that he has on a college class that he teaches on inequality. And the sign says this. It's a popular yard sign. And the sign is, quotes, quote, in this house, we believe black lives matters. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Okay. That's the yard sign. Uh, and the article goes on to say, his students usually dismiss the sign as performative. But what bothers Mr. Kallenberg is not the virtue signaling. Quote, it says nothing about class, he tells them. Nothing about labor rights. Nothing about housing. Nothing that would actually cost upper middle class white liberals a dime. And I think about that uh, in the context of uh, the context of Chicago's election where for the last three years I've been walking through uh, neighborhoods on the north side of Chicago where there are Black Lives Matter signs and uh, no hate in this house signs, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and now folks are getting ready to vote for Paul Vallis, who spent the last two years courting the extreme right. And that's what he did, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you want to pretend it didn't do it, that's what he did. So is there only so far that Dems will go on this issue of inequality? Like if they feel like they're going to have to pay a price for it, that's where they pull back. And so that you can only champion issues for Dems that they believe in, like abortion rights, like maybe just the general notion of environmental rights, environmental regulations. But then if you like go to support Starbucks workers who are unionizing or you go to support teachers who have walked out because they think the uh, health standards are too dangerous to send their kids to, to go back into the classroom or have kids go back into the classroom in the middle of COVID. There'll be a revolt. Anything that might impact someone's position, uh, privilege in society, that's when you get the backlash. And that's kind of what is embedded in what Colin Berg's position is. Uh, your thoughts on all this, Miles? There's no doubt there's uh, different types of Democrats and people that consider themselves Democrats. And politics are a spectrum. And some people can hold very different, sometimes conflicting views. Um, I think most people want to have a dignified life for them and their families and their communities. And the question becomes, how do you know we achieve that? And if you're operating from a defensive approach, which is more, I've got to, you know, keep mine and make sure that I, you know, can hold on versus we need to expand, you know, the pot and, and, and grow the investments we make across the city so that not just opportunity, but actual resources are provided to more people so that they can, you know, experience some that level of dignity in their lives. Um, that's a that's, you know, sometimes it's a further leap than just saying that we want to have equality. And I think that, you know, some of the sign stuff you're talking about, a lot of that is the outgrowth of Trumpism, right, where there was just it was so naked, the, the, the hate, xenophobia, the racism, it was mask off. And then there was, you know, pandemic denialism. 
And a lot of this became a way to virtue signal for, you know, lack of a better term to say, we, that's what we believe in this house means. It says, you know, we're not about that. But you're right to point out that doesn't say what you're for, you know, you could be for science, but then how do you apply that science, right? Like, how, do, how does that mean if we believe in science and we want to have people, you know, not get sick from a pandemic, maybe we should, you know, invest to pay them to stay home or do, you know, add unemployment insurance and increase food stamps and not cut, you know, there's economic measures that are associated with that science, right? And that you don't necessarily believe. It's a much more of like an empty signifier, as you might say. And I do think that's what's allowed for there to be this form of corporate Democrat that has existed for a very long time. And I don't think most people would consider themselves corporate Democrats or use that term by any means. And most people aren't because they're not representing corporate interests, but the people in office often are, and they don't want to pursue policies that would offend the corporate donor class that's funding their campaigns, that's, you know, staffing the, 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 the lobby shops that work with them, all of that that controls this whole form of politics and has become really endemic to how much of the Democratic Party on a national scale operates. And so you see people that go, that leave, you know, especially Obama world, right? And th this was very big. Um, a lot of the people that worked in the Obama administration and on his campaign went on to become corporate lobbyists or, you know, work on the boards of gig economy places. You know, you have Robert Gibbs at McDonald's, you had other people working at, you know, Uber, all these places. They're representing these corporate interests. That's why we use the term corporate Democrats, because they don't want to pursue policies that would expand labor rights, give workers more of a voice at the bargaining table. You remember Hillary Clinton said that uh, she was considering appointing Howard Schultz the uh, CEO of Starbucks as her labor secretary, if she had become president. This is the same Howard Schultz that was just at a Senate committee hearing yesterday, uh, taking uh, at a hearing, taking questions from Bernie Sanders over his company's rabid union busting that uh, has been so anti-labor, so bald-faced um, that the NLRB has cited them over a hundred times for their illegal behavior. This is the person that was supposed to be the head of the labor department under a Democrat. That's why you have term, you know, things, people say things like corporate Democrat, because it's, it's, you know, it's an accurate representation of how a lot of the people in politics feel. And they could still be for, you know, pro-choice, which is very important. I mean, obviously we, at a time when Roe v. Wade has been overturned, there should be nonstop focus on preserving and expanding um, abortion rights across the country. But beyond abortion rights, there's also this concept of reproductive justice. And what does that mean? That means that, uh, you know, female workers should also have paid time off, paid family leave, you know, guaranteed maternity leave, economic issues that would allow people to actually raise their children after after they have them or not have kids and, you know, be able to make those decisions for themselves and still be able to live, you know, um, dignified life, especially when it comes to, you know, the demands that are on working mothers and people that, you know, don't have the resources that are necessary necessarily to, uh, start a family at whatever point in their lives that they might, uh, become pregnant, not to mention, you know, cases of, um, abuse or unwanted pregnancies. So I think on a lot of these issues, it's, it's, understandable people, you know, have basic beliefs. But then when you 
you test them and say, you know, well, how, how are we going to apply those beliefs and how can we, you know, when, when a cost arises and somebody has to lose out, you know, like that's the question. People don't like to use the term redistribution of wealth. Well, we're redistributing wealth nonstop. It's just going upward, right? Like <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, that's like already happening. A class war is on, right? And it's just like the working people are losing. So when you say redistribution, it's more, we got to take from some other people to provide for the vast majority of people in our society who are working people who are not benefiting from the policies in place or the systems that have been built up. And that that is a further leap for some people than just saying, you know, we believe in science or something like that, because it requires somebody to lose out. But the thing is that those people that are that are being asked to lose out under, you know, a progressive political vision are the people that can afford to lose out a little bit because they're doing phenomenally well. And so that's what I think, you know, we need to think about when we you know, talk about what it means to be different types of Democrats and the you know various threads within this overall term of, you know, the Democratic Party. Wow. So much uh, to respond to with that riff. Great riff. The word I wrote down that I want to respond to, you said Obama world. Uh, and, um, and then, oh my God. And the, the, that memory of, I have to say the memory of Hillary Clinton, uh, <laughs> suggesting, oh my God, what was she thinking? Well, whatever that, uh, Howard Schultz be labor secretaries. This guy is like become the poster child of the anti-union movement at this portion of America. It, it, Miles, I, I I can't stay focused on one issue because there's so many things like overwhelming my brain right now. But like to me, Starbucks would just be so ahead of the game if they just recognized the union. The, what, the amount of money they make would not be seriously jeopardized by paying their workers some more money. I just do not understand their resistance uh, in just a, like a pragmatic way to uh, it's something deeply emotional and having to do with control. But all right, let's focus on Obama world for a moment. Um, Dick Durbin came out for Paul Vallis, Senator Richard Durbin. And it's just like he's one of many from Obama world that has uh, come out uh, for Paul Vallis. Artie Duncan has come out uh, for Paul Vallis, who was the Secretary of Education under Obama. Uh, David Axelrod, who is sort of the uh, PR guy behind Obama. I don't think he's publicly come out for uh, Vallis, but he signaled that he supports uh, Vallis. Um, Sophia King, the older woman of the Fourth Ward, who's close with the the Obama family, and I thought I thought there was a chance that maybe Obama would support her when she was running for mayor, and that was what she was hoping for. She has come out for Vallis, even though Vallis's behavior over the last three years is reprehensible. He has joined forces with the the far right over the last three years and yet they support Vallis. help me out here i have my theories but i'd love to hear yours what is it about obama world that so many uh powerful people in that obama universe uh, are supporting paul Vallis? i think there's a lot of concern that a more progressive approach to chicago politics uh, could be a threat to the type of more, for lack of a better word, you know, neoliberal or market-focused politics that the Obama world has been deeply invested in. 
um, that it's a threat to that continuing to operate. And Paul Vallis is a perfect vehicle, you know, for continuing the type of, um, you know, business oriented uh, uh, decision making that has been a marker of, you know, both Obama when he was in office and then a lot of these individuals, um, the type of politics they've continued to advocate since um, since Obama left office. And you're right about David Axelrod. You know, he, um, I don't think he's publicly come out. I don't know if people are clamoring for his endorsement anyway, but, uh, you know, he did say something glowing about Arnie Duncan's, like, editorial about uh, promoting Paul Vallis, which, you know, it's interesting to me too, though, because I will say that Paul Vallis is, said he you know was a republican famously there's the clip from this 2009 interview on public affairs where he said yes i'm more of a republican than a democrat i would you know be a republican if i ran for office and what he has said in response to that is that oh those clips were taken out of context well i watched that whole interview you know you can go on youtube and watch a half hour interview the context is worse in terms of you know that what he's actually saying he spends half an hour promoting privatization because this is back when he was head of the new orleans schools so he's you know promoting privatization and um, corporate reform the same type of uh politics that when it comes to education that people like arnie duncan have promoted as well although he was critical of obama's education policies for not being you know corporate reform minded enough he's more of like a michelle Ree or eva moskowitz guy like a deep you know, we need to let the corporations make the decisions and take the public out of it. That's basically what Paul Vallis is saying. But he also, in that interview, criticized this, the fiscal stimulus, you know, and said that we shouldn't have done the stimulus, basically, after the 2008 crash, and instead should have just done tax cuts. Well, that's the right wing's position. That's what Trump did when he got in office, you know, and that's what Paul Vallis is like openly saying in this interview in 2009. And he goes on to criticize unions especially teachers unions, this is, you know, and he says, I fundamentally oppose abortion, all in the same interview. And so like, these are all Republican talking points and issues that he's advocating then, and specifically being critical and saying he's going to leave the Democratic Party, which he did, obviously, you know, um, and right after Obama became president. Um, and was so basically in response to Obama as the new leader of the Democratic Party and the elected as the first black man to the highest office in the land, he made the decision to jet, you know, see you later, Democrats, and become a Republican. So the fact that now all these Obama people are lifting him up, I think, is shameful in terms of, you know, trying to actually show some, you know, loyalty or discretion or, you know, defend your legacy. But I do think it's in line with the type of politics that a lot of these people have continued to advocate, which is more focused on appeasing the type of powerful interests that have long held most sway in this city and in this country, and that see what type of agenda Brandon Johnson is running on as uh, as a threat to that. And so I think that explains some of what's going on. But I will say, if you look back, yeah, on this history of, of Paul Vallis, it's not it's not like these are, you know, little off the cuff moments that are being seized on to try to paint him as a Republican. He's 
he, he was boy, he was dyed in the wool, you know, and especially when it comes to the school privatization stuff. I mean, I think that's largely what is seen as the, the, the opportunity for a lot of these forces in Paul Ballas is a way to really crush the teachers union because they see the Chicago teachers union as a powerful political force as well as one when it comes to labor rights. Um, and if they can kind of push back on that, I think it's related to honestly the way you started this talking about why Starbucks won't let the workers negotiate contracts. It's similar. It's not that they're even worried about the bottom line. It's like what that would represent, right? If you have a massive global company like Starbucks and they actually get a first union, I mean, they've already voted for the union. There's almost 300 stores that are unionized, but they don't have a first contract because Starbucks is refusing to bargain. And that's a classic anti-union tactic, just stall, stall, stall. And then you can avoid having to actually negotiate and set a precedent that then other stores and other chains um, can uh, mimic when they try to, you know, demand better benefits and wages and working conditions all the same. It's, you know, it's not so much about the bread and butter. It's more what it symbolizes and how that would impact an entire industry. You know, once you have your foot in the door, um, and I think that that's what they fear about Brandon Johnson becoming mayor, too, is if we can have a left wing leader of a city. And what if he puts into place some of these policies he's running on and they work, you know, and people actually, you know, people's lives get better, or, you know, safety improves these things. That would be a huge challenge for continuing to um, advocate the type of more corporate centric politics that have, have been you know, so central to a lot of these people's uh, political lives. Uh, yeah. I just imagine a mayor of the city of Chicago. This is unimaginable uh, over <laughs> for the last 30 years uh, who would openly endorse a Starbucks unionization campaign, any unionization camp. I mean, all over the like the the few museum workers. Yeah, just think of any organizing effort. Uh, any in any industry here in the city of Chicago, in uh, corporate or uh, university or museum, wherever it's breaking out, just imagine a mayor of Chicago who's on the front lines of that. It, it's never happened. The way our mayors view unions is they have profound respect for uh, the building trades who are brought in uh, to the, the inner circle. They used to have the teachers union uh, during their early days of daily in the inner circle. And then the teachers union, long before Karen Lewis, ladies and gentlemen, broke from that in 2001 in their election. I won't give you the whole history of the Chicago teachers union. So they're on the outs now. But that's pretty much it. I just you, you get what I'm saying? The, this, even though it's in the best interest, politically speaking, for the Democratic Party, to have a thriving labor movement, the Democratic Party leaders, particularly in the city of Chicago, oppose that. So when you were going on that riff just now, I'm just like, wow, imagine a mayor of the city of Chicago, like on a picket line with Starbucks workers. Can't imagine it in Chicago, and yet we're supposedly a union city, Miles. You know, I remember when the hotel workers were on strike at the, the end of uh, Rom's years, Rom, they went to bat for Rom. 
in the 2015 campaign. That union, remember the Rom Love commercials? That union went to bat. Rom didn't lift a finger for them. We've never had a real labor-friendly mayor in Chicago uh, in this well, in this century, and goes back to Harold Washington again. So you're absolutely right. The Democrats want union votes when it comes to election, and they want union members to go knock on doors, uh, and they want the unions to uh, give part of their dues to uh, Democratic candidates. But they don't stick their neck out. It's not like they ever stick their neck out for union organizing. Am I missing something? Am I being unfair, Miles? You're right on. And I'll just say about the Unite Here thing with Rom, you're totally right. I mean, that was pretty absurd. And I think all similarly shameful, you know, that uh, there was an endorsement for Rahm Emanuel when he was so opposed to unions. You know, this is the guy that said F the UAW under when he was chief of staff under Obama during negotiations, you know, with the big three. Um, he's made his whole history and and he said f you you know to karen lewis once he got once ron manuel got into office here so clearly it's you know was not a, a a friend of unions but what he did was he tried to promote you know more hospitality coming to the city which could lead to more members for unite here you know you build more hotels or make it more you know easier and that sometimes that means cutting taxes right or and you know ron manuel got rid of the corporate head tax he did more to like benefit corporate uh the corporate industry and the idea was that was gonna somehow i think that that was the calculation was that'll somehow trickle down into more members for the union and that's why they got, got i think that's short-sighted right because you've got to if you want to build a union movement you've got to actually advocate policies that are helpful to workers across the board and that don't do this kind of divide and conquer tactic stuff um but you're completely right this is, would be a watershed in terms of having not only a mayor who comes out of the union movement, you know, who worked as a staff organizer, who fought, was on the front lines, on the picket lines of strikes, you know, by the teachers union, who's fought school closings, who fought for an elected school board, um, and Brandon Johnson, but also he already was on the picket line with the Starbucks workers. You know, when they went on that strike, what was that, a couple months ago, there's the photo of him in Bucktown walking walking out, you know, with the Starbucks workers. And that's the reason Starbucks workers united the union, the local union uh, in Chicago has endorsed his campaign. Right. And so meanwhile, you have in Paul Vallis, somebody whose whole back ba uh, uh, set of backers is aligned with the billionaires and the Howard Schultz's of the world. You know, there was the report out today, we both saw about Betsy DeVos's, you know, Trump's former education secretary, her political pack, uh, backing financially backing Vallis. Well, that pack, you know, the national version of it is funded by uh, the Walton family, the richest family in America that owns Walmart, the billionaires, right? These are the, this is where they're placing their bets. This is where they're putting their investment because that's what it is. Because what do these people care about Chicago? They care about having somebody who will continue to preserve a system that does the bidding, the type of interest that these billionaires are profiting off of. 
And Howard Schultz is part of that same ecosystem, you know, of the uh, ultra wealthy that want to protect their interests. He has a hundred million dollar yacht. You know, this guy is not, he in the Senate hearing, he was trying to talk about salt of the earth and, you know, came from a working class family and all that. Well, that's, that might've been, you know, the case <laughs> decades ago, but now that. you're a yacht driving, you know, CEO. <laughs> so it's, he's actually not driving the yacht probably. He's just <laughs> hanging out in it. Um, but anyway, that's, so that's what this race is coming down to. It's really incredible when you think about what the, not just the stakes, but how these interests have aligned. You've got somebody who is as pro-labor as I could imagine you know, as a representative of actual working people and who's being celebrated by all these. You see the union, AFSCME endorsed him, right? Like AFSCME hasn't endorsed somebody since Harold Washington back in, uh, in 80, 83, right? And so that's pretty incredible. Whereas uh, even more so than Rom, I think, Vallis is getting the national billionaires all coming together to um, try to get him over the finish line. So it's a real kind of class war election we're seeing here. All right, Barry, we've run out of time. Any uh, articles you want to tell us about before you uh, walk out the door? Any in these times uh, stories you're really proud of that you want to promote? Go ahead. Yeah, we got a lot of great stuff, and I do recommend people check out, um, as always, InTheseTimes.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. That will feature pretty much um, everything. We have some really fun stuff. Right now, we've got an interview with George the Cat, who is an internet celebrity, talking about labor rights. I know that sounds a little absurd, but um, if you go to InTheseTimes.com and read the interview with George the Cat, I promise you, you'll get something out of it. Um, we also just uh, premiered a feature, an investigative feature on kind of rural America and specifically on Montana um, that's being headed by this writer, Joseph Bullington. The article is a, called In Montana, An Avalanche of Wealth is Displacing Workers. I really recommend people check that out. We also had an interview with Brandon Johnson that we uh, published last week that's really revealing with uh, Maximilian Alvarez. And I want to give a quick plug to, there's a group called More Perfect Union that focuses might have seen some of their videos. They do a lot of video content. They're focused on, um, you know, labor and union efforts largely, but also some political stuff. And I just uh, did a video with them on the mayor's race that is, I believe, um, debuting, debuting today. So um, you should, folks should check that out. You can go to their website, More Perfect Union, or follow them on social media, or follow me on social media. I'll post it on my um, Twitter, which is um, at Miles K. Lassen, M-I-L-E-S-K-L-A-S-S-I-N. Um, so yeah, check all that good stuff out. And um, of course, um, make sure you keep listening to uh, the great Ben Jarofsky show. All right. I didn't even prompt that one. Uh, thank you very much, Miles. Uh, and uh, we will avoid any conversation of our beloved Bulls. Uh, last night's performance was wretched. Sorry, Bulls. I must speak the truth. You <laughs> That was terrible. Oh, losing to the Lakers at home. I don't even want to talk about it. You know what struck me, though? I will say this, Miles, as I head out the door. This is not a sports conversation. I will really resist it. I couldn't believe how many Lakers supporters were at the stadium last night. You know, I mean, <laughs> like, that is a significant cult here in Chicago. Laker fans. I would say, I mean, it's <laughs> up in the... I would say about 10%. I would say 10% uh, were wearing Laker clothes, including three la uh, uh, rather boisterous gentlemen sitting in front of me. We had a good time watching the game together. They were trash-talking me so much, but they were all good sports about it. They, they, they were not violent or anything. 
So very bizarre. That sounds like sounds like sounds like they're Hollywood as hell. That's what I gotta say. <laughs> Joe Kim Noah, I love you. Joe Kim Noah. <laughs> talking about uh the Miami Heat, wasn't it? Wasn't he talking about the yeah. Miami Heat with uh, LeBron James? All right, very good. Miles Conflasson, thank you so much. Uh great writer and thinker and a diehard Bulls fan. And a regular on the show. Also, want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as he always does. Give yourself a raise, producer Chris. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Don't forget, you can download previous Ben Jarowski shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at ChicagoReader.com. Find the Ben Jarowski show on Instagram at the Benny J Show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.